Hello everyone, Dr. Chris Martinson here with you and with another exciting chapter of The Crash Course. And today we're going to be talking about demographics and infrastructure. I know, super exciting. No, these are really important concepts because it completes the economic side of this whole thing, which puts us in the frame of understanding how unsustainable the current trajectory that the United States is, and by extension, many other Western countries. Because we're all kind of in the same boat. The United States is a fractal representation, if you will, of how everything's going to unfold other places too, basically the whole world. So let's start with a quick summary around that. And after these chapters, what we're going to be moving into then is energy. And this is going to be the most important part of the entire crash course and as well the environment. So let's go there right now. Check this out. Demographics and infrastructure. This is where we're at. So here's where we are in the crash course so far. I presented that there are three E's, right? The economy, energy and environment, honorary fourth E, which is exponential growth. Put them all together and um, you're looking at things like global credits, exponential money growth, failure to save aging populations, etc. Those are the two pieces we're going to be talking about today is kind of this national failure to save as well as aging population because they both have huge impacts. Demographics is destiny when it comes to debt-based money systems in particular and their exponential growth needs. So um, that's what we're trying to do is put all these things together. Why? Because I'm, I'm leading towards a conclusion, which is this, that we're really just on an unsustainable course. It's completely obvious this whole industrial approach to, you know, how the world is going to turn out is, um, it, it, this whole industrial approach, it's, it's got an expiration date. Like it's not, it's not even that I, Oh, how should we save it? I don't think it can be saved. And here's the case I'm going to make for how that all comes together. So, so far we've talked about, uh, exponential growth, right? We did the Yankee stadium example. If you remember, we're surrounded by exponential growth. If you remember the thing about exponential growth is things speed up towards the end. So if you feel like things are really going fast right now, this is the explanation for it. You would have found that in chapter one. And that's what exponential growth looks like right there. It looks like a hockey stick chart. And that's United States debt levels at the federal level. That's what that looks like. And then we went on and discussed money and wealth. What is wealth? And I made the case that money is not wealth. It's a representation of wealth. Real wealth is primary wealth secondary wealth. Okay. And that if you want to preserve your wealth through this great destruction of the currency system, which is coming at some point, you really have to be parked in primary and or secondary wealth in kind of those, uh, in a pyramid structure like that. So I made the assertion that money is just this claim on wealth, primary and secondary wealth currency. What we call money is just tertiary wealth, real money, which would be gold and silver or other hard things that are not able to be expanded infinitely by humans who are weak and should never be trusted, really. Um, verified, never trust. Uh, that money, or what we call money, is just a claim on wealth. And debt, what's debt? Debt's a claim on future money. So if you want to understand where we're going, you really have to understand debt. You have to understand money. Those two things, they define how your future is going to unfold. We all, if you have money, things are possible. And if you run out of money or currency, ah, things get hard. So understanding this is really vital. I don't know for the life of me why this isn't taught, why this isn't something that everybody's clamoring to hear about. I don't know. But because you're listening to this, you are among those who actually care about your future 
and are capable of hearing and listening to these kinds of messages. And then um, this is the money shot, as it were, for this particular thing. All money is loaned into existence. Our money, what we call money right now, it's all just loaned into existence. And it, that is a, has a feature built into it. And that feature is that it's always, there's always going to be more debt than money in the system. And debt has to be repaid with interest. And anything growing by some percent or rate of interest over time is growing exponentially. You live in an exponential money system. It has a mathematical end date written on it. It has a system failure point. It has a math problem. And that's just the world we live in. So understanding that and coming to terms with it as soon as possible is a good idea. And then, um, yeah, so I just said that, but there's the, there's the, there are the words. And then we talked about the Fed and how the Federal Reserve is really, they're, uh, they're neither federal nor do they reserve anything. It's a private cartel structure. The Federal Reserve sits on top of a lot of member banks who actually own its capital stock. And everything the Fed does, they say they care about price stability and full employment. But the truth of the matter is that the Federal Reserve is actually a reverse Robin Hood organization. That's what they do. They print and print and defend a system and that allows the winners, which is the top 0.1%. This is when, you know, the, the Federal Reserve's prime job, if you just go by the data, which we see down there, seems to be to make billionaires more billionaire That's what the data says. That's what they're doing down there. So if the Fed's doing that and we have decades of data to say that's what they're doing, maybe we should believe that that's what they're up to. Because remember, if somebody says they're going to do something and then it happens, maybe they did it. And maybe they did it on purpose. Okay, so that's the Federal Reserve. Important to understand who that is because they get a lot of free press and, 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 and you know, the the... Very, very obsequious press. We don't have a press in the United States anymore. We have stenographers for the power structure, right? So that's what we really have. And those stenographers, in the case of the Fed, they never ask probing questions. They never say, how come you're making the billionaires more billionaire and just throwing generations under the bus? Why are you screwing millennials to bail out boomers who gave you that right? All of that. So if you just read about the Federal Reserve and the press, you're going to think that this is a really respectable organization with people who are trying to do their best for the good of the country. When in fact, they're doing the best they can for the top 0.1%. Of course, because those are their owners. That's how the system works. Okay. And then we talked about how uh, inflation, something happened, something, something happened in uh, 1971, August 15th, to be precise. Um, and that was where we lost the last tethering of, of our money, our currency system to something tangible in that case, gold. And so what happened as a consequence of that is that even though we had hundreds of years without any inflation whatsoever, except for a little war periods, now we live in a regime of persistent, sustained inflation. And that has consequences, lots of consequences, which you already know about. Okay. So finally, we wrap this out and uh, we talked as well about how total credit market debt versus income, debt to GDP, GDP is the income in the story, that the debt has been growing faster than the income, that too is a math problem, that too has an end date, an expiration date stamped on it, and it's not that much farther out in the future. So if you understand all of these things, you put them all into one spot, you come up with this idea that our financial and economic systems are completely unsustainable. 
anything that's unsustainable will someday stop. Okay, so with that reminder of those first five chapters of the crash course, let's dive into chapter six, demographics. Okay, demographics. What is demographics? It's just the study of, of how humans are structured by age brackets. So here we're looking at uh, the United States around 1900 had what is a very typical pyramidal shape to its age brackets all the way on the bottom on the fat bars at the very bottom. Those are zero to four year olds and then it's five to nine, 10 to 14. So these are five year age brackets and it just steps up that pyramid. And this is the shape that society had when our money system was designed, when ideas about um, retirement systems came into play. Because you can imagine taxing people down on those wider layers down there to fund the retirements of people who are on the top of that little pyramid. So that pyramidal shape has certain things that you can do, certain things that are possible. Now, the problem is, is if you design systems for that shape, given the reality of that pyramidal population demographic shape, and then the shape changes on you. Because then maybe your programs don't make sense anymore, but now you've kind of made promises and people are kind of addicted to these programs. And so what do you do? Well, you operate them until they break. And that's the story we're telling today. So in 1960, we can see here, uh, this is the new shape of this whole thing. There's a little, there's a gap there now. You see that gap in that bulge? Lost a lot of people around in that age bracket in the war. Right. And then there was this baby boom afterwards, which you see in that widening down below. Um, and so that's the boomer bulge right there. You can see that we can track that boomer bulge as we go through time. Here's that boomer bulge in 1980 has already moved up 20 years advancement on that. But now we can begin to see the outlines of both the good and the bad. The good boomers hit their prime working years. This is their prime earning years. That bulge of baby boomers is going to move up this demographic pyramid and it's going to be accumulating more and more wealth. And of course, the boomers were blessed with a country that had good infrastructure at the time, really high energy resources, um, was a very dynamic country in terms of its laws and its regulations that really enforced and it enabled businesses to flourish and start all of that. Uh, and a long sustained period of relative peace. So there were a lot of, lot of tailwinds for the boomers. And so as they came up, they accumulated a lot of wealth. Now here we are in the year 2000, you can see the boomers are now, um, that bulge has moved up. They are now staring right down the barrel of their own retirement, which is coming in just another uh, 10 years or so. And this is the period of time when the boomers are accumulating all sorts of assets, real estate, stocks, bonds, you name it, businesses, all of that, right? By 2040, though, uh-oh, <clears throat> we no longer have a pyramid shape anymore. In fact, this is this is not looking good anymore. This is now a, this is a column, right? And so, what happens with that column is, um, well, if you're designing a retirement system where you need lots of people down at the bottom feeding in and paying retirement taxes so that the current retirees can retire. That does not work under this model at all. This, this is a completely broken model. You can't, you can't have existing retirement programs working on this demographic profile. So that's what we mean. Demographics are destiny. This is, it's impossible to have retirement under this shape 
given our current structure around it. <clears throat> so we'll talk about that. Now, how are boomers going to fund their retirement when they start to retire out of this? And that bulge moves up another 20 or, or 23 years past that. So just mentally advance that all 20 years in your, in your brain. So, well, what do you do when you fund your retirement? Well, you sell your big house, you know, you sell your stocks, you sell your bonds, you sell them, right? That's all. And then you take that money and you uh, live off it. The question is, who are you going to sell it to? Because there's more of you and you have more of the wealth. And now you want to sell it to the people behind you, but there's fewer of them. That's what that circle is denoting right there. There's just fewer people there. It's just a math problem again. So let's say it's time to sell the big old McMansion. And the question becomes then, well, who are you selling it to? You know, this guy, right? You know, and secondarily, the Federal Reserve specifically threw the younger generations under the bus in order to bail out the real estate property prices of the boomers. That was a decision they made. This was Ben Bernanke's 1% blowout rate forever because, oh, no, real estate prices are coming down. But, uh oh, no, no, they went up because of stupid decisions the Fed had made that had made them overinflated. And so rather than letting them deflate, they ran this 1% interest rate special, which allowed those house prices to stay higher. That bails out, I guess, people who have houses, but people who want to form households, uh oh, can't get started because housing is too expensive. This is a very common story. And so I like to go to the headwaters of the story so we understand this wasn't like some act of nature that we can't understand yet. This wasn't some universal principle. It was Federal Reserve policy. Bail out the boomers, make them feel wealthier at the expense of Gen X and millennials. Okay? Just want to be clear about that. All right. Now, the baby boomers... They own like half the wealth at this point in time, half. If the United States has about 140 trillion in wealth, and I'll question whether we actually have that much wealth because you actually have to be able to sell it to somebody in order to have that. But the boomers have a half of that. Gen X has roughly a quarter of it, maybe a little more than, than a quarter. Then you have the silent generation. These are people born before 46. And then you have millennials down there, um, and they are holding the smallest piece of this pie. So the great wealth transfer is going to happen. Hey, the baby boomers, listen, they can um, bequeath it. You know, you can um, have people inherit it. But if you're thinking about selling any of that stuff, the, again, the question is, who are they selling it to, right? They have to sell it to people who collectively hold a lot less wealth and there's fewer of them, right? And they're not going to be selling it to the silent generation. So it's really millennials and Gen X that are going to have to sort of step up here and buy all these assets from the baby boomers, which, as you can see, consists of stocks, bonds, real estate, businesses, others, things like that, right? So this is a huge issue. How is this going to happen? And under what circumstances and terms? Simple answer is it's not going to happen like most people are hoping for. And it's going to have to happen under different terms. And those terms will include a very heavily debased or inflated currency. Now, Here's what I'm talking about again, too, in terms of um, the overall selection of one socioeconomic group over another. This is from a New York Times again, from that same place I got the the prior graphic. So noting, they're noting here <clears throat> the top 10% are holding uh, from 50 to 140 trillion. So they're holding basically 100 trillion, just the top 10%. The bottom half are holding a couple trillion. I don't know what that is, that little tiny blue bump down there. But at any rate... Um, top 10% are holding vastly more than the 
bottom half of the country. So again, the top 10% is going to have to be busy selling these assets to the other people in the top 10% because nobody else has any wealth. And the second thing we would notice here too is see that extraordinary increase in how those top two, um, top two, the top 1%, the 90 to the 99th percentile, those top two buckets, see how quickly, look how much they exploded after the great financial recession, which is that first hump there in 2008, they just both exploded off because after the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve went on a very distinct policy of inflating financial assets, stocks and bonds and real estate. So those three asset classes comprised most of what we're seeing here. And the Federal Reserve decided, you know what? Screw the 90, 90% on down. We're really all about the top 10%. In fact, we're really about the top 1%. In fact, we're really about the top 0.1%. Can we just call a spade a spade? I mean, that's what it is. This is a shovel. You know, we can just look at this and see what it is. And the reason I care about this so much is because this is a wealth inequality that is going to, is already destabilizing our society. And this does not make us more prosperous in the future. When we have a great wealth gap, it makes society more corroded, less is possible. All of a sudden you find that all the rich people are suddenly living behind steel gates with razor wire on top. And it's a very much less dynamic, less prosperous, less wealthy, less fun place to live. Now, if only somebody had been able to warn us about this a long time ago. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite quotes from Plutarch. An imbalance between rich and poor is the oldest and most fatal ailment of republics. All republics. Yeah, it's true. This is a well-known thing. You don't have to go to school to learn it. We don't need any PhD mathematicians at the Federal Reserve to sort of come up with a formula to figure this out. This is common sense. Prosperity, the reason the United States was and remains, but fading fast, such a dynamic powerhouse is because of a broad middle class. The Federal Reserve has just hollowed out that entire middle class, and it's done it in concert with the federal government, who's been busy telling us fibs, right? White lies, or worse, about how much inflation there is. Spoiler alert, there's a lot more inflation than they tell us. How many people are actually working? Hey, spoiler alert, there are fewer people working than they tell us, right? On and on and on. Our official statistics are basically <clears throat> about as believable as a CDC report on <clears throat> anything COVID related, right? So this has happened. It's happened over time. And, and so we have a Federal Reserve and a federal government coming together to enforce a system which is systematically taking away the legs on the stool of prosperity. And that's where we're at right now. Okay, so here's why I think we're going to have a lot of trouble with retirement programs going forward. It's entirely possible that retirement might turn out to be a two or three generation long artifact of abundant fossil fuel energy, particularly oil. But I'll save the rest of that thought for future chapters. Current here's here's a troubling trend. So <clears throat> remember I said, you know, when they set up all these retirement programs way back in the day. So in 1950, there were seven workers for every retiree. So you can kind of imagine clipping the paychecks of seven different people who are working, and then you funnel that money off to a retiree, and it sort of balances itself all out. 
by 2005, that had come down to just five workers per retiree. So I guess now you have to clip a lot more of a paycheck. The issue is, is that by 2030, it's going to be less than three, less than three workers per retiree. Now this is getting really hard. Like, how do you fund this? And in fact, you can't. So back when it was seven workers per retiree, there was actually surplus in that system. Started to balance out at around five, but by three or less, it's actually an upside down thing. And the, the retirement trust fund will be hemorrhaging that entire time, something I've talked about many times. And of course, the Congressional Budget Office has already said and told us that Social Security is going to be completely broken out of money by 2033. But in fact, it's actually broke now because it doesn't actually have any money. It just has IOUs from the U.S. Treasury Department, which is a wash level accounting, which basically means it's got nothing. Okay, so but as configured, it's going to be completely broke. So what will have to happen is taxes are going to have to go up a lot per worker or payments per retiree are going to have to go way down or one of those, you know, some combination of those two things, because otherwise this system is broke um, and the laws will have to be changed in order to accommodate this reality because this doesn't work. Math problem. Again, we're just surrounded by math problems. Here's another one. It's just a math problem. That's all. And this is what math looks like in a chart form with the amount of funding diving to zero by 2033. So this is coming up soon. All right. This is in next 10 years kind of a thing. Now, on top of that, we got to look at infrastructure here, infrastructure in the United States. Listen, if you build something, you got to maintain it, right? So I built a house. It's worth a half a million dollars. What if I don't repair the roof? What if I don't, you know, repair, replace uh, the siding when it needs it or the deck? Obviously, anything you build has to be rebuilt over time. So it's not enough to say, oh, look at all the infrastructure we have. You have to ask, what's the maintenance cost on that? Now, this is uh, something that I'm going to be talking about in terms of energy, energy budgeting. But we could use the same thing for capital or money or infrastructure at this point. So let's imagine, you know, I say uh, total energy comes out of a system and you can funnel some of that off for consumption. You use that for basic living or discretionary but then some of that has to be funneled back into new building, which is that energy used to get energy. But then that capital, see that capital arrow that goes down like that, Oop, that one, that capital, that's the amount of reinvestment you have to put back into your existing energy infrastructure, or in this case, infrastructure, infrastructure, right? It's one thing to build a windmill, a wind tower. It's another thing that you have to replace that, that or maintain it over time, or we have a bridge that's over a river and it needs to be maintained over time. So that's a, a, a cost that has to be understood because it's a very big one for the United States. Now, obviously, everything that's built needs to be rebuilt at some point. We have a fairly decrepit state of infrastructure in the United States. There's a lot of deferred maintenance money that has not been spent because, you know, what? It's always, yeah, let's push that out. Let's just put another coat of paint on that rust. We'll get to it soon. Those are promises we make, but we've been making them for so long, I'm beginning to doubt that we're going to meet those promises. So it turns out that 42% of all bridges in the United States are at least 50 years old, and 46,154 of them are considered structurally deficient. That means they are in poor condition. I mean, you can see, look, at that's very poor condition bridge right there. So that's just bridges. 
right? How much would it cost to repair or replace 46,000 bridges? I don't know. Aren't, aren't bridges like multi-million dollar affairs now? Um, you know, just for even a simple one and maybe, you know, hundreds of millions for a more complex one. Yeah, they are. The, those are big numbers. Okay. And then remember this, this went down the memory hole. Here I am recording this in June of 2023. We had this uh, train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, and it released a lot of vinyl chloride. I haven't heard anything about it in weeks or months. I should probably look back into that. Um, but this really illustrated the decrepit state of our rail system in the United States and railroads are one of the most efficient ways to move things from point A to point B. And you would think in a healthy intact society that one of the things that would be most up to date would be your rail system because it's that important. It's a vital national interest thing, not sending a hundred billion to some foreign country so they can blow stuff up. But I mean, fixing and repairing your own infrastructure is the mark of a healthy, well-adjusted society. So obviously we got some signs that maybe um, rail systems aren't in the best of shape, you know? Yeah, we can see lots of examples of how maybe not. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, so the rail system needs a lot of updating. And of course, if you are that healthy, well-adjusted society, this is Japan on the left, China on the right, they have high-speed bullet trains that are astonishing, astonishingly fast, well-run, on time, get people from A to B. You know, you don't have to get on a short-haul flight. It's, you know, to go from city A to city B. You can just get on a train in city center one, be dropped off in city center two. It's very civilized. And if you've been on one of these trains, you could have a glass of wine on your little table in front of you, and you won't even see ripples in the surface of that while you're speeding along at you know, hundreds of, of kilometers per hour. Whereas in the United States, if you take Metro North in from New Haven into Grand Central Station, you better hold on to anything on your little table if you even have one, because uh, it'll slide off as that train lurches back and forth on tracks that look like these. That's how it feels when you're riding at them. So at any rate, uh, if you want to be a modern industrial nation and you want to be efficient about it, you have to make investments like these. And to make investments like these, you have to be serious about it and you have to make sure that you're um, dedicating lots of money and doing it in the right way. And also not allowing NIMBY, not in my backyard parties to come in and mess your whole thing up and regulations bogging you down, all of that. All right. Well, you know, good news. Um, America's infrastructure scores a C minus now from um, the infrastructure report card, a group of uh, civil and structural engineers. It's better in 2008. We had a D minus in 2008. So it looks like we, we've made some progress since then. Um, but they note here in their report card they put out every year. Pretty cool. There's the link down there. Uh, there's a water main break somewhere in the United States every two minutes. There's growing wear and tear on all our nation's roads. 43% of public road roadways are in poor or mediocre condition. There are 30,000 miles of inventoried levees across the United States um, and 10,000 miles that are conditions kind of unknown. And a lot of them need repair. Uh, so some examples of infrastructure right there that, that really needs to be gotten to and repaired. And by the way, it'll take about another $2.6 trillion to get us United States back up to what you would call first world standards. And this doesn't even include things like, I don't know, making sure that there's high speed internet in every home and that our nation's electrical grid could actually handle 
the loads required from the idea that we're going to be moving to all electric cars by law. In the case of California and New York, they say by 2035, that's it. Only electric cars can be sold. They better go and check the grid that they're planning to plug all those cars into because they're going to find some disappointing news, which is there's a lot of money that has to be invested and reinvested back into our infrastructure just to get it back up to maintenance. Remember I said there's that capital that goes in. This is just to maintain what we've got. And by the way, in the future, it's more maintenance. Just There's just ongoing maintenance cost. That is a, a just a, a, a coin you have to keep putting into the slot of progress just to keep what you have and rebuild it when necessary, right? So maintaining, rebuilding, let alone growth, new bridges, new roads, new houses, new buildings, that's all extra. This is just talking about money required just to keep what we already have in play, um, as it were. Okay. So there's a lot of future economic demands coming all at once. This is how I wrap up and summarize the economic portion of this. And we had to talk about demands from retirees and all of that. So first we know that, that we've got extraordinary interest payments in the future because we've slathered all this debt onto our income, our GDP at a much faster rate than the GDP has been growing. So guess what? Very, very expensive interest costs in the future. We know that we have a big, big retirement problem in the United States. We know that that's coming due soon. That's uh, something that we have to get to in the next few years here in the United States to fix this. Huge battles around this. We know that uh, our infrastructure is badly in need of a lot of reinvestment. And if we want to get up to first world standards, true first world standards, we're going to have to really invest because you don't just sort of straighten those that you have to replace that entire rail line if we wanted that to be one of those modern high speed rail lines. All of this is to say we're on a very unsustainable course with respect to our economic output in this country and our financial conditions. So this all seems completely obvious. You're probably sitting here going, well, how come this isn't talked about more often? The reason is, is that there are no easy answers to any of this stuff and no politician's going to broach this except maybe, um, you know, a very few brave politicians, because you have to tell the truth to the American people. You have to say, we can't have everything we want anymore. In fact, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. We're going to have to accept higher taxes and then we'll get better infrastructure or we're going to have to accept higher inflation, which is a hidden tax and use that money to pay for the infrastructure. But either way, Getting your infrastructure up to where you might want it isn't free. Hidden tax, overt tax, you decide. Or you can't have this thing. Oh, well, we'd like to have, you know what, Chris, we don't want any of that. We're Americans. We want no taxes, no hidden taxes. And what we want is we want to be able to conduct wars anywhere in the world, anytime we want. And we want all this infrastructure. We want to be able to give retirees everything they want. And we should be able to pay all our interest payments back because we definitely don't want to default on our debts. And we're and 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 it's it's immature and it's mathematically impossible. And it's not gonna happen. And in the absence of having good, high quality conversations where real adults make real trade-offs, because that's what that's what business is. Business is not decisions, business is a series of trade-offs. So without people who are willing to talk about those trade-offs and say, would we rather have one of these or one of these? Because we can't have both anymore. Well, we're going to end up in a place where we default into that future. That future is coming. That's why I talk about resilience, your resilience, becoming prepared for this. You should figure out what you're going to be doing with your wealth. Make sure it's not all stored in this thing called money, which is really currency. You should figure out 
um, what kind of skills you want to have. You should keep your neighbors close and your friends closer. You should be able to figure out where's your food coming from. All of these things are actually going to be essential for thriving in the future. So that's why we talk about all of this at Peak Prosperity. That's why we have the number one online resilience community. That's why I do what I do because I care about you. I want you to be safe, happy, thriving. I want you to have a future of meaning and purpose, even if it's got less stuff in it. Maybe especially if it has less stuff in it. Maybe that's the key to happiness. Who knows? But these changes are coming. And even though I can't predict when they're coming, I can predict that they are coming. That is easy because the United States economy, and by extension, a lot of the world's economy, is now in fundamental violation of the laws of physics. We, Our economy is, to me, and our financial system, to me, is a lot like Wiley E. Coyote, already off the cliff edge, but hasn't looked down yet to notice it's about to fall. So that's the story I had for you here today. Um, and by the way, every one of these episodes has a part two over at Peak Prosperity for my members. And we dive into the implications of this exact data from each of these chapters. And we go into more depth and I bring it up and use current examples around what's going on in the world. Because, hey, I'm an information scout. That's what I do. Hope to see you at Peak Prosperity. I hope you got something out of this. Leave your comments down below. And I have to say this, hit like, hit subscribe. Because that helps the algorithm say more people should see this. And I think more people should. So with that, thank you very much. We will see you next time for uh, the next chapter of the Crash Course where we are going to be starting in on energy. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.